Blog Talk Radio. Writers Show is now in the air, spotlighted on BadRedHeadMedia.com as a top author podcast on the web today and called a total blast of a show for writers. My name is Robert Batista, and you may ask, why is the Funky Writers Show so terrific? It's because I'm a writer, just like my guests, and know that words are the breath of life. Connect with the show on the exciting Twitter page by going to at the Funky Writer. Today's exciting guest started out in Hollywood producing movie hits such as Ghost Story and Raggedy Man. He has since moved on to becoming a brilliant author in the thriller genre. His name is Bert Weisbord. Welcome, Bert Weisbord, to the Funky Writer Show. Thank you for having me, Robert. Uh, well, it's so good having you, Bert. Um, and wow, your resume is just top notch. Bert, on your website, you've written a piece called Reliving the Golden Age of Hollywood. Let's talk about it and why you felt the need to relive this great period in film history. Well, you know, I was, when I was a young man, I was interested in movies and. I really didn't know anybody in the movie business, and I did some graduate work in finance at Northwestern in Evanston near Chicago. And I raised a small amount of money because at that time you could develop a full-budget screenplay for $9,600. That's a big movie, and that was reachable. And I went and I got my foot in the door by approaching the very best writers I knew. I mean, I went to people that, when I say I knew, I didn't know them personally, but I knew their work. I went to Andy Lewis, who had written Clute. I went to Ross McDonald, who had written all the Lou Archer uh, novels. I went to Freddie Raphael, who had done Two for the Road and Darling. And I just made unusual arrangements, unusual deals with these writers, because I would give them things that other producers wouldn't. And before I knew it, I was a young man. I was working with these exciting writers who had done all these exciting movies, and uh, I was being approached by studios to for them to finance other projects. And so I didn't actually go with the intention of, or even the awareness that I was participating in one of the most exciting moments in film history. I just sort of did the right thing at the right time. Writers, and this is 
you know, something you as a writer will understand. Writers in Hollywood were sort of at the bottom of the food chain. And right. anyone who right. came in and volunteered to back them, and I would do things like guarantee them that they could have the first rewrite of their screenplay before anyone else could get brought in, or that I would allow them to co-produce the movie with me so that that would give them other kinds of protection. And writers really supported, well, were enthusiastic about, and willing to work for less money because of those kinds of deals. And so we did some, I thought, really interesting and exciting work. Now, of course, most screenplays in Hollywood don't get made, and I'm going to jump ahead. And, <laughs> you know, I'm, you know, as exciting as it was for me to work with these wonderful writers and as thrilling as it was to to, to develop some of these screenplays. And, you know, you would often get paid a lot of money to do this, and you could sell them right. for a lot of money. But it didn't mean that they would get made. And sometimes when they did get made, they really weren't everything you'd hoped they'd be because of factors that you couldn't control that had to do with the studio, that had to do with timing, that had to do with, you know, the kind of business Hollywood was. And so I came to a point where I felt that, you know, the decision for me was to either uh, become a director, because film was clearly a director's medium. Certainly at that time, directors had the final say over just about everything. and Or else go and start writing myself. And for me, it would have to be novels, because I had seen what happened to screenplays and to writers on screenplay. And I really wanted something where I could have the last word. And I had young children, and I decided I really didn't want to be a director because it was just it's like being on a cattle drive. You know, it was just too big a time commitment. <laughs> <laughs> and I started writing. I mean, at first I wrote a, a couple screenplays just because I wanted to do what I knew. But before long, I was writing novels. And I never looked back, and it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Bert, you're right. It was a golden age in Hollywood. Filmmakers were taking risks, and studios were giving directors free reign to make daring movies. Can you go into this statement a little deeper and compare it to what's going on in Hollywood today? Sure. Uh, I had the good fortune to be working on a project with Marty Scorsese, uh, and I actually went with him to the Cannes Film Festival uh, to meet, on the way we stopped to meet with writers. That's where we first met Freddie Raphael in London. And he went on to win that year for Taxi Driver. Uh, films like that, I mean, the, the kind of freedom that Marty had and, and in subsequent films, because he was so successful as a director, it really isn't happening with the exception of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and, you know, directors who are an industry in themselves, I mean, and can finance their own movies, directors don't have that kind of freedom anymore. They don't have the, uh, it's a much more corporate culture. And, you know, one th something happened with Star Wars and the studios figured out that if you made a film that really touched, you know, 12-year-olds, they'd go three or four times. Well, that tripled your audience. And suddenly, the movie business began to direct uh, the big pictures, what they call tentpole pictures, uh, at a younger audience. And so the artistic freedom that directors had to do more mature, more adult films, uh, 
Well, two things were happening. One, studios weren't making as many of them. And two, they were making more money on these big action films or, you know, Transformers or, you know, things that were for a younger audience. And it was a different kind of director who could execute those films. And it's not that there aren't great directors making those movies, but it's not the same as Marty Scorsese directing Raging Bull, which would be a very hard film to get made today. You know, you mentioned the movie Clute with Fonda and Sutherland, and it makes the back of the hairs of my neck stand up. That movie was brilliant, and uh, it, as you said, it's 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 a mature movie, as opposed to, as you said, the movies being made today, which, uh, for lack of a better word, um, in my personal opinion, are like imbecilic, and and for. For basically children, as you said, um, and and it is just uh, amazing of the difference. So, at what point in Hollywood? At one point in Hollywood, you were called on the carpet, Bert. Hello, are you there? I'm here. I'm just going to have to oh, turn. Okay. I got this. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes, at one point in Hollywood, you were called on the carpet at two different studios and scolded for making unconventional deals with writers because the executives you felt or the executives felt you were setting precedents that would be ne- negative to the industry seemed like you were about doing the right thing for writers explain your state of mind bird when you left well, the you- office after being quote unquote scolded Right. I want to. I want to go back. I will come back to answer this question, but I want to talk to you about Clute for just a second and Andy oh, sure. Lewis because I I worked with Andy Lewis on five screenplays. I know him very well. So one of the best writers I ever worked with, and uh, Andy's a perfect example of this transition that you're talking about. Andy wrote adult movies. All of the screenplays we worked on were complicated character pieces, and Andy had one other film made. It was a film called Zandy's Bride. And I sold one of Andy's screenplays to a lot for a lot of money to Warner Brothers, but it never got made. And Andy ended up leaving the movie business, even though he won an Oscar for Clute, because the, even though he could make good money, the kind of screenplays he was making were no longer getting made. So that's right. an example of what we're talking about. So let's then go to your specific question, which is, you know, early on I was backing writers in ways that was – I guess, threatening to some studio executives. Right, but, you know, right. it's like um, my lawyer at the time said to me, you know, as soon as you have a hit movie, they're all going to be calling you back to say, you remember that time that I scolded you for, you know, all these unconventional things? Well, you must have been right, because look at this hit movie you just made. I mean, it's like... Um, I took it seriously. I was a young man, and it, it, it sort of bothered me, but I didn't change what I was doing. And as it happened, before long, these same studio executives were calling me up to be in business because I was selling screenplays for a lot of money. So, Bert, you left Hollywood in 1987 saying the golden age was over and I wanted to write. With hindsight, the best Screenplays I'd worked on never got made. Nevertheless, it was a great experience. Bert, at one point, did you exactly know that the golden cow, the golden age was over? And why did you think that the best screenplays you worked on 
never got made. Um, I didn't know that it was over when I left. And that's, okay. you know, a statement that's easier to make with hindsight. Than in hindsight. Right. I did know in my gut that it just wasn't working for me because it was too hard to get. It was getting harder and harder to get the good things made. And, you know, I think the, the two screenplays that I did get made were wonderful screenplays. So I'm not taking anything away from them. But in each case, I mean, if you look at Ghost Story or if you look at Raggedy Man, I mean, the stars line up in a certain way, and that's why the studio makes them. In the case of Raggedy Man, it was a wonderful screenplay that the studio bought and for a lot of money and really liked. And originally, Sally Field was going to star in it, and it was there was an Australian director, and then the, Sally dropped out, and the director dropped out, and uh, and this often is marks the end of a movie, and. Uh, Sissy Spacek, who had just made Coal Miner's Daughter at the studio at Universal, and they were looking for something for her, and she loved the script. And Jack Fisk, who was a wonderful production designer, the studio agreed to back him to direct, and he was her husband. So it's like everything fit, and bang, we were off to the races, and that movie got made. Ghost Story was a book that they bought for a lot of money for a Christmas right. release. And there was so much momentum behind that that we were able to, you know, hire a not very well-known English director. And that movie got made because, you know, the studio had invested so much money in it. So my comment is there were other screenplays that I worked on. I mean, either the, there was a great screenplay for Willie Nelson's The Red-Headed Stranger, which actually eventually got made as an independent film, but same writer as Raggedy Man, but that never got made. The Andy Lewis screenplay, some of them were extraordinary. One of them was bought called The Arms Merchants by Warner Brothers, and that one never got made, even though they sent it to a lot of directors and actors. And, and so, so much of a movie getting made is serendipitous. It's just the right place at the right time, the right people, you know, being enthusiastic. And that's not necessarily a function. I mean, if you take a group of very good screenplays, and let's say they're all, you know, between seven and ten on a scale of ten, you know, there might be one ten that gets made and two eights, but there might be two tens that never get made. That's what I was trying to say. So with all your insight and experience, I have to ask you, Bert, where do you think Hollywood is headed? What's in the future for Hollywood? You know, I don't know. I'm not close enough to it. I mean, I think there's sort of a, been a, a new world of independent filmmaking that's developed that I really don't have a sense of the pulse of. I mean, you know, my publisher is actually going to Sundance this year. And I think it's in part because of all the exciting independent filmmaking that gets that gets seen there. And there are some, and I would like to make a transition to talking about the writing in my books because there is some similarity between publishing and the filmmaking business. And, I mean, the time frames are completely different. But the, I guess to, to finish up answering your question, I think that there will always be big movies and they will be more and more. I mean, the big studio movies are the spectacles, if you will, you know, uh, geared to a younger audience. 
but I think there will be fine independent films, and every year there's more of them. And I think there, the, the key to this is something that I don't know the financial realities of, but I got to believe that with streaming, with Netflix, with all of the different ways to deliver motion picture product, you don't need to make a $100 million spectacle film and have a studio supporting it with $50 million of advertising to get an independent film that's made for $2 million seen by a lot of people. And that could open a lot of doors. I mean, I'm very hopeful about that. Yeah, I agree with Netflix, the independents, and, and even now Amazon. Uh, definitely they're going to be game changers. So, Okay, so now, Bert, at this stage, you want to write novels, as you said. How was the transition from writing screenplays to authoring novel fiction, and what was the immediate differences between the two? Well, from the beginning, I loved writing novels. I loved it more than anything I'd ever done. And what I used to say about that is that... um, you know, when you're a producer, you're managing other people's problems. You know, Fred Astaire right. is calling you in the middle of the night because it's cold in the room, you know, I mean, and with good reason. <laughs> <laughs> I can just see that. <laughs> and, and, you know, you fix that problem, you know, and you're happy to do it. But when you're writing, you're managing your own problems. You're thinking about yourself. You're thinking about things that you choose to think about that, you know, you're sort of working your way through. And it feels like... Uh, I don't know, it was it just felt like a, a, a privilege to me to be able to spend so much time doing things that, thinking about things and writing about things that I cared deeply about and being able to resolve them in ways that worked for me without consulting anybody. There were no studio executives. There were no, I mean, sure, eventually I would talk to my publisher, I would talk to my editor, but all of those were constructive and collaborative relationships intended to improve a product that I'd already signed off on. And that was thrilling. Now, it took a long time to get my books published. So that's the other side of this. And that, of course, is, um, I'm sure, something that comes up a lot on your show, because there's so many good writers that, uh, you know, have not found their way to getting their work published. And, uh, that's a very hard aspect of the book business. So let's talk about the evolution of your first book. I believe it was Inside Passage. Inside Passage, yes. Right. You know, so a, um, how long did it take you to write this book from concept to completion? Um, well, that's a, a, an interesting question because Inside Passage – It was first a screenplay. Uh, It was not called Inside Passage, nor was the story the same, but there was a character, Corey Logan, that I was interested in. It was the first screenplay that I wrote. And then, you know, when I got, I I wrote a couple other screenplays. And when I went back, when I began writing novels, I wrote, um, well, I decided to turn it into a novel and. It was a wonderful experience because, you you know, there's no real inner life in a screenplay. And that's something that interests me a lot, and I do a lot of in the novel. So the novel really took on a life of its own. And it took me a long time. It took me, I don't know, a couple years. Um, And, you know, I I, I put it aside at one point and then came back to it. Uh, But it was a long time. 
uh, of just letting it percolate and going over and over again. My writing process is to write and rewrite and rewrite until I get where I want to go. Well, as you said, a lot of um, authors and new authors always want to know about how can you publish and how did you get your books published. So, Bert, you have your manuscript for this story. Um, Who published this story, Inside Passage, and talk about any challenges you had in getting this story out to the world. Well, this is a good example. Uh, I had many rejections on this book. Uh, Okay. And most of them were by agents, because I really wasn't going directly to publishers. I was trying to get an agent, and... You know, they just it just didn't fit the mold. And so I finally decided I was going to learn about self-publishing. And I was given a couple of books about self-publishing, and I read them, and I figured out that if you were going to self-publish, the critical person was the person who you hired to do the marketing because that's how you would get, you know, your book out. Right. So I talked to my Hollywood friends about who was the best marketer uh, of books out there, and they did a little, you know, checking with their publishing friends. And I had a studio executive friend who'd been in publishing, and they came back to me uniformly with one name: Tyson Cornell at Rare Bird Lit, who ran a marketing house that did the the marketing for a lot of the big publishers. So I called Tyson. And I said, look, I'm thinking about self-publishing this. I'd like to talk to you about the marketing. Uh, And he said, well, can I read it? And I said, sure. And that was on a Friday. Monday morning, he called me up. He said, I read it. We're starting a publishing company that's going to be publishing 12 books a year, first year. And by now, he's publishing, geez, I think he's published 36 books this year. Um, We'd like to publish it. That was the whole story and completely unexpected, and he's been a wonderful person to work with. He's published all three of my books, and the fourth one is coming out May the 10th, the third book in the Corey Logan trilogy. And he's been, you know, everybody tells these horrible stories about their publishing experience, and mine has been wonderful. And he's the only publisher I've worked with, but as an editor, he's superb as a collaborator on you know we collaborate on everything the way the 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 design of the book the way the the cover looks and um i couldn't be happier wow we hear so many horror stories and not so great stories about getting books published and how the authors got their stories out there and this story is is great uh what a great great success story for you um let's talk about Bert Weisbord, the person. I know you're originally from Chicago and graduated cum laude from Yale University. You also spent some of your youth in Paris and taught English in Thailand. Can you talk a little bit about those two experiences and what type of impressions they left on you? Well, golly, you know, I was in Thailand and uh, I took a year off to my sophomore and junior years at Yale and I spent, you know, I guess I went in from August to May. I was in Paris, and that was in 
just after May 68. So it was a very exciting time to be in Paris. And I worked, at the, I volunteered at the Museum of Modern Art there in a section called Animation, Research, and Confrontation, which was um, sort of spawned by the events of May 68. And it was a center for artistic experimentation. I met all these young artists from all over Europe who were doing wow. conceptual art and happenings. And, you know, I'm still friends with a lot of these people who've become very well-known artists. And uh, it was a thrilling experience just to be in this world of, you know, all of the conventional thinking had been thrown out the window in Paris in May 68. And people were really experimenting. And, you know, we had wonderful... It was very formative for me. I was just 19 and, uh, and 20. And it was just the beginning of a very long conversation about sort of what is art and what do you want to create and how do you want to do it and what are the boundaries, what are the rules and that's a conversation that I'm still thinking about and um, I think it started there. You know, it's amazing. Every time people mention the year 1968, uh, people's eyes just sparkle. Uh, there's just there's especially so those of us who are who are over sixty. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean, you know. And even those who are studying history, they always talk about that one year, 1968. So, Bert, now you have a sequel to Inside Passage called Teaser, which is another Corey Logan thriller. Where does this story take Corey Logan, and does it end right where Inside Passage leaves off? Uh, all three books are very different, but they're all continuous, although they're all standalone. You could read Teaser, right, right. and I think you'd want to go back and read Inside Passage, but you, it wouldn't take anything away from your enjoyment of Teaser that you hadn't. And Minos, the third book in the trilogy, it's the same thing. Teaser in Inside Passage, Corey Logan's just coming out of prison, and uh, she was framed, and in order to get her son back from foster care, she has to have um, a uh, – well, she to make a long story short, she has to see a therapist or a psychiatrist as part of a dependency adjudication to, you know, be certified as a fit mother. So she goes to the psychiatrist, and that's Abe Stein, and he is the other protagonist in all three books. And to jump ahead, he doesn't believe her at first. She has to run away because she's in danger. He realizes that he's made a mistake, that she was right. He chases her up the inside. He finds her in British Columbia. He brings her back. They face a very dangerous adversary. And in Teaser, when the book opens, they're married. So that's something I love about Teaser, which is this is a relationship that has developed right. in, into something quite wonderful. And in Teaser, you know, Corey is a person who is very able in the world. You know, she was a fisherwoman. She supported herself when her mother died when she was 17. She had no father at that time. And uh, she worked on a persainer up in Alaska. She, she canned fish after school at the fisherman's terminal and very self-reliant, very able in the world. 
Abe Stein is one of these guys who sort of is always burning a hole through the pocket of his sport coat because he left an ash in his pipe. I mean, he's like clumsy and not very good <laughs> in the world. But he's a marvel with emotional life. And he really knows how to navigate the very complex terrain of, um, you know, helping people sort out emotional issues. And in Teaser, he's seeing a patient who um, is, he senses more and more in danger because she's sort of, it's really about runaways and private school kids. And she's a private school girl. And she's involved with a couple of street people who are potentially quite dangerous. And um, Corey has created a, a career for herself finding runaways. And once found, they become the client, and she helps them sort out what to do. And she is finding in her world, uh, she's coming to the same conclusion that this girl is in danger. And no one will listen to him. You know, the private school is really sort of at this time in history idealizing uh sort of street reality, and in any event, the girl is kidnapped, and it becomes a very scary book, and together, you know, Abe and Corey working together, save her, and sort this out, and I want to jump ahead to the third book, because the third book is a logical continuation of this relationship, but the third book is more Abe's story. In Minos, Abe is seeing a girl, and again, they're all, they have a son, or it's Corey's son, the boy who was in foster care, that Abe is now his stepfather. And he goes to the Olympic Academy, which is a fictitious school that I created um, in Seattle. And all of the kids that are at the center of these books are in all, at least two of the three books. And in the third book, it begins with Sarah, who is... Um, at the Olympic Academy, and she's in the the restroom, and she locks the door, and she carves a magic circle with her athame, which is an ancient dagger, in the floor, and she puts candles out, and she's uh, begins chanting. She's trying to reach the oracle at Delphi and find Theseus, the Greek hero, and it makes no sense, and she starts a fire in the bathroom, and they suspend her and they send her to Abe for treatment. So she, there, you know, she is living in this Greek mythological universe that is actually very carefully constructed and out of touch with reality in some way. And at the same time, runaways that Corey knows are dying. And Sarah is predicting this. So the key to solving these murders is in her mind, and Abe, as a therapist, has to enter that world, and it really is a fascinating relationship between them, and in so doing, is able to solve the mysteries of who is doing the murders, and it's a very surprising revelation. So anyway, I probably went on longer than you expected with this question, but that's the answer to your question. All of these books are connected, and at the center of them are these two people who are unconventional thinkers and able to move both through the world and through emotional life in unconventional ways. Yes, and
and and the great great thing about it is every book also stands on its own, which is fantastic. And your Abe Stein character sounds like a film noir. <laughs> sounds like yeah. a, a character in a film noir movie with the pipe and the ashes. <laughs> You know, I can just see the jacket, you know. I can see Edward G. Robinson playing Abe Stein. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be great. <laughs> he would be fantastic. Uh, I just caught him in Double Indemnity uh, the other night, and uh, wow, what a great actor Those were great was. old so, movies. Yes, yes. So um, you mentioned Minos, and you say it comes out on May 12th, right? It uh, May 10th. comes out May in May 10th. May 10th. May the 10th. It's, it's available to pre-order now at Amazon and right. Barnes and Noble and so on. So, what else is next for Bert Weisbord? Uh, any other irons besides Minos that you have in the fire coming up? Yeah, I'm writing a new book. It's a standalone book called The Bronze Pig, which is also set in Seattle, which is a different kind of book, different new characters, um, much more of an action adventure. Character-driven. All my books are character-driven thrillers, but this one has a lot of action and, and is set mostly in a restaurant in Seattle. The Bronze Pig is a fixture at the Pike Place Market in Seattle, and this is a restaurant that I've created fictitiously with a little bronze pig in front of it that's named after that pig. And uh, this is a, a wonderful story about smuggling and... Uh, and, you know, there's a love story at the center of it, and um, there's a lot of sort of more contemporary uh, Cayman Island shelf corporations, how money is laundered in the world, and and how it all gets to this restaurant is kind of uh, a fun thing to write about. Sounds like that's going to be awesome as well. So in closing, Bert, I have a question I feel is necessary to ask you, being that your resume is so vast. Uh, of all your life's experiences, besides your family, your wife, your children, what would you say you are most proud of? I think my books. I mean, I think that's an easy question for me to answer. I mean, obviously, I'm proud of my children, and, you know, we're taking them out of this. But in my work life, and, uh, and you know, and I, again, I'm not including my relationships, but in my work life, there, I am very proud of all of my books. And uh, although I feel like I didn't do much of a job describing the bronze pig, it's always hard for me to talk about works in progress, uh, but I feel like each book in some way is better than the last, and that's something very satisfying about that. By that, I don't mean I don't love Inside Passage as much as every one of them, but I'm just, you know, it's the opposite of producing. When you're producing, you get worse and worse at your job because you burn out a little. I mean, there's only so much crisis management you can do. When you write, I feel like you get better and better. You just yes, sort of I agree with that. Definitely. So, go ahead, sir. No, you go ahead. So, give out any contact information, uh, any websites, uh, emails, or how they can follow you and on any of best the social media. Is, Please give that out. The, the best thing to do is uh, go to www.bertweisboard.com 
And from there, you can email me at that site. You can uh, go to my Facebook page at that site, or if you if you have trouble getting there from there, just go to Facebook, Bert Weisbord. I have an author's page, and I would welcome you know any questions, any uh, comments, and we'll respond. This has been the Funky Writer Show with me, Robert Batista. I'm at, at author R. Batista on Twitter. Look for my short stories, Carmela's Dream and My Baby Has No Name, on Smashwords.com. My guest has been screenwriter, prolific author, and so much more, Bert Weisbord. Make sure you visit his fantastic website, BertWeisbord.com, and feast your soul. Thank you so much, Bert, for being a guest on the Funky Writer Show. Thank you, Robert. It was a pleasure. It was fantastic. Have a great evening. Bye now. You too. Bye.